welcome to a special St. Patrick's Day Beer Vana podcast, Patrick. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. I, I'm not used to the wind-up there. I'm trying to get us in there. <laughs> yes, it's a roll, roll reversal today. Yes. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. You are, of course, uh, Patrick Emerson. Yes. Uh, professor of Economics at Oregon State University, as well as a research fellow at the Center for Applied Macroeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics, known locally as C-Micro, and you blog and tweet at Beeronomics. That's that's me. And you are, in case you forgot, uh, Jeff Allworth, uh, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, uh, and uh, Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, you have a new book in the works for Chronicle, correct? Uh, for Story, actually. Oh, for Story. Sorry. Yeah, which is a actually a sub-imprint of Workman, so it's sort of in the family, but not exactly. All right. So the so the pipeline is is full, as we say in the in the academic uh-huh. uh, sphere. Uh, got to keep the got to keep the pipeline pipeline going in research. Uh, and uh, of course, you blog at Beervana, uh, tweet at at Beervana, and uh, for all about beer. And I podcast at at Birvana too, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, I see a theme. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so we're doing a little switching at the table tables today uh, on this St. Patrick's Day. Um, we're going to kind of switch the tables a little bit and do an economic topic. Um, and I will turn the mic over to Patrick. Uh, just at the end of last episode's Barrel Aging podcast, the question of pricing came up. Um, and we had a nice uh, short exchange about pricing that got uh, us and other people interested. So we thought that we would delve into that because it turns out that economists think about pricing very differently than beer geeks. And yeah. it's nice to have a formal structure to think about these things. So today we're going to turn the Beervana podcast into the Beernomics podcast. That's right. Special <laughs> Beernomics edition. Special Beernomics edition of the Beervana podcast. Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll get to that. But first, of course, we got to talk about the beery news. Uh, so the first item on the agenda is uh, Tampa Bay's Cigar City, which sold a controlling interest. Another to continue the theme of of, uh, of uh, brewery sales, interest to Boston-based private equity firm Fireman Capital Partners, which already owns majority stakes in Oscar Blues, uh, Perrin Brewing, and the Utah Brewers Cooperative uh, out- outfit that includes the Wasatch and Squatters brands. Uh, Collectively, all five companies produced more than 320,000 barrels in 2015. Yeah. So one more time. Another another one goes the way of private equity. Another one goes the way of private equity. So there's still still, uh, investment money out there to be had. And we have a very special uh, Cigar City Hellas Lager here that we'll try later, especially for this news. That's right. We have the, uh, the the hotter than Hellas Lager, ah. which has the the, uh, uh, the tagline and logos: "No peppers, just puns." So. If it's not if it's not pun, it's not craft beer. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, second item on the on the uh, on the news feed is that uh, Coors was uh, sued by a guy who says that uh, he was misled that Coors wasn't in fact brewed in the Rockies with Rocky Mountain Spring Water. Uh, A quote from the paper says, Since 2008, Coors beers have been brewed in non-mountainous locations from Trenton, Ohio to Irwindale, California. And today, Coors Banquet is the only Coors brand the company claims is brewed exclusively in Golden, Colorado. And if this guy uh, prevails in this action, I think I have a new revenue stream idea. So we should should watch this one closely. uh, Yeah, caveat emptor, as we say in economics... 
Uh, buyer beware. Not all cores is brewed with pure Rocky Mountain spring water. I don't even actually know uh, the source of their water. I, I've actually been to the brewery, and it's, it's by a little creek, but the creek doesn't seem big enough to actually uh, supply their water. So I imagine it's probably just municipal water from, from Golden, Colorado, which you know comes from Reservoir in the Rockies, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, as is all beer in Denver. So, by the way, any any Denver area beer you're going to get, the the uh, Denver, Colorado, controls an enormous watershed in the Rockies. So that's all beautiful Rocky Mountain spring water. Well, spring, Rocky Mountain water, runoff water. Which it does in the spring, so it all adds up. So there, so there you go. <laughs> uh, uh, my only comment about this is, if the reason you're drinking Coors beer because... <laughs> You believe that it's special because it's brewed in the Rockies. You're doing something wrong. Uh, okay. That's correct. Uh, Jeff, speaking of St. Patrick's Day, you're yeah. off to Ireland. Yes, I this am. This weekend, in fact. A little a little news closer to home. Uh, I recently uh, debuted my new sponsor on the Beervana blog, which is uh, Guinness. And in the process of uh, setting that up, which took a long time because uh, it's a big corporation and they yeah. have uh, many layers of... Uh, people to be involved so it's not like a, a blogger who just whips stuff out yeah Congra- congratulations on that by the way thank you um it took a long time but it but the cool thing was during the process of that um i got to chatting with uh, the the folks at, at guinness and they are inviting michael ash to the brewery next thursday and he is the man who in 1959 invented the nitrogen uh, dispense system. He's a mathematician, yeah. and uh, he he. So he. Everyone now knows the widget and the, the the cascading head and all that stuff that makes Guinness famous. And now we we even talked a little bit here about nitrogen pores, how they're becoming more popular. Um, this is the guy who who Guinness brought in mm-hmm. to come up with a new dispensing system because they had this old uh, kind of complex system that was not good for the modern era. And it turns out Michael Ash is still alive at age 88, and the brewery wants to honor him, and they're going to have a little thing, and I'm going to get to interview him. So uh, hopefully down the line, we'll have some cool Michael Ash podcasting and blogging and other things. So. Yeah, I've always been, like, I understand locally, uh, I assume this is true in Ireland, although I don't know, um, but locally, the breweries often control their own, often own their own pubs, their network of pubs. In England, this is this is the way it was, at least. And so... You know, you come up with a new dispensing system and you then put it in all your pubs. Uh, but uh, I've always been curious about how how quickly that spread. Well, I don't even know at what point Guinness became particularly popular in the United States. But, but now um, when you go to a bar, uh, Guinness is generally served with nitrogen. I believe always. Is it always? Yeah, I think so. That was, that was one question I had. And the yeah. second question is, I wonder if that was all, has always been true, if they've shipped the Guinness and the and the nitrogen system together, or is it something that has slowly caught on? Well, I will answer all those questions. When you get back? When I get back. Right. I, I could hazard a guess now. But take I, notes. Yeah, I will definitely take notes. And yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't expect the answer now, but I'm just I'm, I'm curious to yeah. find out what you learn. I'll take my little mic, too, so we can get some audio and hopefully have some cool things to share with the podcast listeners. All right. Well, vaya con Dios. Thank uh, you. Uh, enjoy your trip, and um, we'll look forward to hearing it about it when you get back. Cool. Well, let's move to the main topic then, shall we? Oh, economics. Oh, Everybody's favorite topic. It is actually, I think you're surprised, but uh, a lot of the Twitter action and emails that we get are about economic topics. So I think it's more, perhaps more interesting than... It's, you, it's you a lifetime of conditioning. So, you know, my, the story I always say is that uh, you go to a party and people ask, what do you do? And, and 
as soon as I say, oh, I'm an economist, usually that's when you can see the eyes <laughs> glazing over and they say, oh, yeah, that's nice enough. They wander away. So it's usually the best thing to, to destroy any kind of uh, uh, um, nascent conversation <laughs> in parties. Admit you're an economist. In the abstract, that's probably true. But when you start to say things like, why does this beer cost uh, $7 a six-pack and this other beer cost $10 a six-pack, um, then you're, you know, people, people are, when you talk about the applied nature of economics, people get interested. And yeah. uh, we often throw around economic terms and con uh, concepts like we know what we're talking about. Um, and when we were talking uh, in the last pod, I realized that uh, a layman often misses some, some important technical stuff that we should know a little bit more about uh, mm -hmm. that helps explain some of that. Yeah, and it seemed like we we could do a whole pod on that, and maybe um, all become better about our economic understanding of how these things work. Well, let's give it a try. Yeah, that's the beauty of a podcast; you can always turn it off. <laughs> that's right, but don't turn <laughs> it off yet. If it gets Wait. too boring, yeah, we're going to save all the good stuff for the end. So <laughs> it could be. It could. Who knows? This could be interesting. No, we, this will certainly be interesting. You're a riveting speaker, and um, the dismal si science is of <laughs> see. <course>. see? <laughs> Of course, a fascination for all. <laughs> all right. Uh, so we're going to do this um, sort of as a, as a, as a Q&A &A, Q session. Um, Jeff's uh, got some questions that um, he sort of shared the broad outlines with me, and I'm going to do my best to answer these questions. Um, we designed it this way so that Jeff would answer, ask questions, hopefully that uh, be similar to those that uh, the people who are listening uh, might think of themselves. So uh, fire away, Jeff. I'm, I'm at your disposal. All right. Well, let's start with this word. Let's do some uh, term defining mm -hmm. um we use the word market loosely and i talk about markets all the time in my blogging and other things i, I talk about the uh the beer market but i don't really have a technical understanding of it i just think of the market is the, the all the beer that's sold it constitutes the beer market and, and what so what is it in, in from an economics perspective what's a market yeah so uh a market in economics is actually um one of the more slippery things uh, um, that we talk about for exactly, I think, what you've, you've already identified, which is a market is really about a set of product or a set of products and a time and a place. Um, and it's not, once you start thinking about it, it's often hard to define. So um, let me give you a non-beer example and then we'll switch to beer. Uh, but one that I use um, uh, when I teach about markets is if you think about um, a, a good or a service being, for example, um, uh, uh, voice communications um, it used to be that you might have a market for telephones and, and that was obvious uh, but then cell phones came along and then you had voice over internet and now you have uh, cable phones and things like that so um, sometimes it's hard to know uh, is a smartphone part of the telephone market is that the same thing as a landline telephone that you still buy in an electronic store um, is my laptop computer also part of that market because I can speak over that? So market can be very difficult when you start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Beer is a little more straightforward, um, but there are different ways to talk. You can talk about the overall beer market in the United States in 2016. Um, so that's a market. It's a very broadly defined market. Or we can talk about the market for uh, craft beer in Oregon in uh, March of 2016. So there's a a product, a time, and a place, mm -hmm. um, more specific. And we can even get even more specific. We can talk about the craft IPA sales in Portland uh, in the week of St. Patrick's Day um, 2016, for example. Uh, 
So uh, a market really is amorphous. It takes a definition before we can really talk about it or a shared definition before we can talk about it. So we need to know exactly what it is we're talking about, when and where uh, that we're talking. Okay. Well, that raises a whole bunch more questions. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so in a, in a market, you... You have competition, right? You have all these different products that are in Sometimes, the market. Sometimes, yes. Um, well, you have, or at least you have, uh, you have products in a market. In beer, you have competition. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that you can have a monopoly. That's right. possible, but right. Um, so uh, when you have products, you have other this more economics terms that float into my brain. I'm not really sure how they work. Is uh, supply and demand that affect the way we consume market. Uh, consume products in a market. So how does how does that stuff? Yeah. Happen? So so all the stuff that we talk about uh, when we've talked about price and I talk about um, the economics of beer. Uh, the most fundamental thing that I have in my mind because I've been trained to have it is just the basic supply and demand model. Um, and you're right. Any supply and demand model that we draw uh, or talk about um, is uh, concerning a particular market. Um, so when I talk about the market for craft beer, I'm thinking of sort of in the United States, all craft beer, however you want to define uh, craft beer, but basically all beer not brewed by big, you know, Miller Coors, Bud, right. for the most part. Um, uh, and then I think about the the, the basics. So, um, you know, this is this is a podcast. So I don't have any visuals, but let me tr just. Uh, to paint, paint us to try, picture. yeah, to try a set to try to uh, fix ideas, as we say. Um, think about a typical supply and demand graph that has price measured on the vertical axis, uh, quantity measured on the horizontal axis, and then you have an, a supply curve that's a line that slopes upward, and you have a demand curve as a line that slopes downward, and where they intersect. And I'm not going to worry about quantity. I'm just going to talk about price, which is essentially the height. It's measured on the vertical axis, so the price can go up or down. Where those, two line, where those two curves intersect, we have the market equilibrium price, the price at which uh, the, the um, amount of beer supplied is exactly equal to the amount of uh, beer demanded at that price. Okay, this is interesting. So now I'm starting to understand a little bit. When you said the thing about a market is a, you said a, a market for IPAs in Portland mm -hmm. this week. Yeah. I see how this is going to be different. The IPA market is going to be different in Portland than it might be in, 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 uh, in Cleveland or, or Tampa or New York. Absolutely. So yeah. because there are different products for sale, there's different demand. And there's different demand. We love IPAs here. Lots of them are made. So that's going to be one set of supply and demand. Uh, maybe in, um, oh, I don't know, Louisiana or something where it's really hot. Maybe there's much more lighter, lighter beers. And so there's fewer IPAs and less demand. Um, so yeah, so it depends on, on, on what we're talking about when we talk about the market. And one other thing I should mention about markets is, um, and I've mentioned this a couple times in the pod, because um, I'm curious how much overlap there is between, say, a market we define as craft beer in the United States and a, and a market we define as macro lagers in the United States. Um, because, uh, again, you can define a market for beer total, and mm -hmm. those two things inhabit that same market. What I'm interested in is how much does uh, what goes on in the in the macro lager market affect the, the craft beer market and vice versa. Um, it's something that, that interests me. I don't have an answer. I just find that interesting. So anyway, going back to our supply and demand. And do you think they're connected? Uh, I do think they're connected somewhat, but I don't think they're connected that closely um, in a, in a short-term definition. So in other words, I don't think... What happens, you know, say the price of Bud and Miller and um, 
uh, cores uh, affects that much the demand for craft beer this week. What I think is that there's a sort of a long-term, a large long-term effect. Like I think that the increasing demand for craft beer, a lot of people are being introduced to it and sort of growing up with it. And that is affecting the demand for macro lagers for sure. But it's sort of a long, it's a long-term effect. It's something that's slowly happening over, over time. And we'll talk about that a little more when we talk about okay. demand, demand curves as well. Yeah. So just a so just a fixed idea. Think about an upward sloping a line that's upward sloping that's supply and the line that's downward sloping that's demand and price measured on the vertical axis. I'm just going to worry about the price right now. So what those two curves represent? The supply curve it represents firms, brewers, mm-hmm. and their costs of production in two ways. One, it can be a single brewer who might want to brew more and more and more beer. And as they brew more and more beer, their costs might go up. For example, they've got a fixed capacity, so they know they could, they could uh, pay some overtime and brew a little extra beer. Mm-hmm. So it starts getting a little bit more expensive as you, or if they want to brew even more beer, they have to store some more grain and that they have to rent a storage locker or something. You know, th- those are the kinds of stories we tell. Right. Uh, so for an individual firm's supply curve is upsloping as well, generally, for those reasons. Um, that the marginal cost of producing more beer starts to go up after after some time. Uh, the market demand curve also slopes up, and that's for that reason, because it's made up of a whole bunch of individual brewers, each of whom have an upward-sloping supply curve, but also because there are brewers of different levels of cost. So the bigger brewers are going to be, as we would say, lower down on the supply curve because they can supply beer at a, at a, at a cheaper price because right. they have, uh, they have um, access to bigger breweries and economies of scale that result. Right. The, the number of people they have to hire to brew a given amount of beer is less. So they have that cost and all these other costs they save. Money. That's right. And as we've talked about, the amount of fixed equipment you have to have per gallon of beer or per barrel of beer right. um, is less. Just It's just the way the physics works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the market supply curve slopes up for two reasons. Um, one, as we said, is the individual uh, supply curve reason that each individual brewer ca- finds it more expensive to brew more and more beer, uh, but then there's a whole uh, sort of universe of brewers out there: some cheap, some lower cost brewers, and some higher cost brewers, and they make up parts of the supply curve. So, how the market supply curve works as the price of beer goes up, individual brewers find it uh, uh, profitable to produce more beer because with a higher price, they can justify those overtime costs or whatever it is. And less productive brewers find it possible to start brewing and making a profit on the market. So let me put it this way. When the price is really high, even even fairly unproductive brewers, less productive brewers, very small brewers, for example, uh, uh, can make money um, selling beer. And as that price goes down, uh, breweries will cut back on how much beer they brew, but also some brewers will not find it uh, profitable to brew beer anymore. So mm-hmm. that's why we have that upward sloping relationship. The price goes up, the quantity goes up. The price goes down, quantity goes down. It's for both of those reasons. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's 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 useful to keep in mind because that's part of the model we're going to keep in our head when we think about what determines the price of the beer on the shelf. So what goes into that? It's the cost of production. Economies of scale is a big deal in brewing. So economies of scale is a big part of the, the cost of production. But it can also depend on you know, how cheap you get your water, 
how much how cheap is your energy because you got to heat that water and that's expensive what are local labor costs like local tax local beer taxes local beer taxes Oregon for example has just passed the legislation to increase the minimum wage uh, fairly dramatically right. statewide right um, and uh, there's a lot of people who work in breweries that are probably paid close to the minimum wage so you know this is going to increase the cost um, yeah so those are the kinds of things that that matter for the supply curve and that's and that's why I always talk about economies of scale so much because that's going to determine where you are in that supply curve and how resistant you are to say uh, the vagaries of prices um, uh, if you're down below you can you can salt uh, beer at a lower price now one thing I should say by the way when we draw this supply and demand curve this is a model and a model is a simplification of reality um, and so it's true that not all beer is the same we're talking about beer as as essentially a homogeneous product that's that's going to be the simplifying assumption we make when we when we think about but it's true that there's all kinds of different beer different qualities lots of different aspects of beer that might matter and we'll talk about that part on the demand curve um, but f uh, at, at its basic level we're going to ignore those kinds of differences and just think about um, the basics of the supply and demand curve first and then we can start adding in those little uh, um, little extra bits of, of reality and think about how they affect our, our model. So that's sort of the technique that economists use when they model, and that's what mm -hmm. a model is, the simplification of reality, so that we can make some sort of systematic sense of the world. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so that's the, that's the supply side. Uh, hopefully that makes sense, and that's, what, that's yeah, why that was, it's upsloping. Um, and then, of course, we have the, the demand side, and that's a downward sloping. That means as price goes down, uh, the higher the quantity um, is demanded. And... That makes uh, a lot more intuitive sense usually to, to students of, of economics. Um, when it gets cheaper, you, you're more likely to, to buy more of something. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, I, have a, I have a real world anecdote that was really fascinating to me. And I mentioned this to you and you, you looked at me like, of course. <laughs> Go ahead. That, that was uh, when Amazon, when Beer Bible went on Amazon, for whatever reason, uh, the first few weeks that it was, that it was on Amazon, uh -huh. uh, Amazon adjusted the price by like 50 cents to a dollar up and down. Just uh, like every couple of days they would do that. Mm -hmm. And you can see it, you, uh, Amazon tracks where your ranking is uh, uh, relative to all the other uh, books on Amazon. And when they raised the price, my ranking went up too. It was like linear. I, I could I could tell how it was hopping around just by how they changed the price. If they changed the price by fifty cents, fewer people bought that book. Yeah, it was yep. like, it was really shocking to me because it just as an individual consumer, it wouldn't seem like that would be such a, a big influence. And that's probably how we think about it. But in the aggregate, when you're thinking about all the millions of people who are mm -hmm. looking at books, then maybe it makes sense. Yeah, and economists have very sophisticated pricing models to try and figure out how to maximize the amount of revenue you get. And that's, I'm sure, uh, a sophisticated pricing model goes into the Amazon algorithm to decide exactly how much you should be charging based on the sort of immediate demand that you're seeing. Yeah, and Amazon gives bigger discounts to books that are selling bigger volumes mm -hmm. too, which is one of those feasts of the, the already wealthy uh, that uh, happens on Amazon, which is kind of brutal. But it, it, it seems to be reflecting exactly what you're describing yeah well it makes sense so any you know if um there's a lot of uh econ economists always talk about opportunity cost which is the cost of the next best thing you might do when you do something else or the next best use of that dollar that you spend and we're always making these unconscious decisions about um you know uh what should i buy uh in, when i go to the grocery store and when you see uh something's on sale you might be more likely to buy Oh, uh, I don't know. Today I'm going to buy the 
the chicken breasts instead of the pork chops or something like that because chicken breasts are on sale. So we're making these kinds of relative decisions all the time. And so when things get cheaper, we tend to buy more of them, um, sometimes just because, sometimes because we're switching away from something else that's now uh, not quite as attractive. And it's also, and, and just like in the supply curve, it's not just that individuals are buying more as price goes down, but that more individuals are attracted to buy for the in, in the first place as mm-hmm. price goes down. So, mm-hmm. so I might like craft beer, but... Uh, I have a very tight income, and so I might buy some really cheap macro beer because it's the cheapest, um, and don't buy any craft beer at all. But all of a sudden, when there's a craft beer that goes on a big sale, I might think, "Hey, you know, now, right. now I'm going to try this and buy a six pack of this one." Um, and so both those things are happening, and that and that describes uh, what's going on in the demand curve. As the price goes down, there's uh, existing consumers might buy more, and new consumers are drawn into the market. Mm-hmm. But uh, what affects the supply and demand curve um, is what affects the price. So, in other words, each of each of those things describe the the relationship being shown by the curve itself. That as price goes up, supply goes up, and quantity goes down, and demand goes down. Uh, quantity quantity supply goes up, and quantity demand goes down. To be precise, and as price goes down, quantity demand goes up, and quantity supply goes down. That's fine. And then there's this equilibrium point, this this intersection where there's a single price at which the quantity demand equals the quantity supplied. We call that equilibrium, and that's the price what you see in the market. Okay. Well, I talked about what matters in supply uh, and where people are located on the supply curve, but things can also shift the supply curve. So if all of a sudden, say, the price of hops goes up because there's a hop blight. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this exact thing. Because yeah. there was a, a few years back, uh, price the prices of hops really shot up dramatically. Right. And so that affects the cost of production for everybody. And but it so, didn't seem to affect that. This was sort of the curious thing and what I wanted to ask you about. It didn't seem to affect the price of the beer at the, at the end, uh, except in a really marginal way. Like it seemed, it, 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 it seems like the price of beer is not nearly as responsive to the price fluctuations of barley and hops as, you know, and, and beer never gets cheaper. Like now, now there was a period of time after that, hop shock where hops got really cheap and my beer prices didn't go down so why why doesn't why isn't that reflected in pricing yeah that's interesting that's a that's a there's kind of a sophisticated answer for that let me let me um before i answer that just just uh finish the thought about how sorry um that's okay no i just no but i just want to make sure we make the connection that hops price goes up hops prices go up that's a input into beer so the cost of production goes up that should shift the supply curve and i'm just going to use the terminology up and down for the supply curve because that tracks with price right so as mm-hmm. the supply curve goes up you should expect higher price the supply curve goes down you should, you should expect a lower price and same thing with demand curves uh, so this should shift the supply curve up for everybody that that should move the move the um, supply curve up on the up along the demand curve and increase overall price so the question is, why didn't you see that overall price increase in the market? It's probably because the demand curve uh, is quite flat. So as you move up the demand curve, imagine you're looking at an X right now. Well, the demand curve, the downward part of the X, isn't quite as steep. And so when you shift the supply curve up, uh, you don't actually see a big change in the price because consumers in that case are fairly price sensitive. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be the one guy with the beer that goes up by 50 cents because there's so many other good beers out there right. that people might quickly switch. I suspect that's going on. This is by all, by, by the way, all conjecture, but that's what is nice about models, right? It gives us uh, a context which to sort of hypothesize and theor- theorize. Um, empiricists then go and check the data and figure out whether, <laughs> whether our, our models are correct or our hypotheses are, are correct. 
And is there something to having kind of a stable market? Like if I went down to the grocery store and one day my uh, six pack was $7 and one day it was $12 mm-hmm. and then one day it was $8. Like if it was bouncing around all over the place. As it often does. It doesn't bounce that. Like, I mean, it'll... it'll, it'll Not from the brewery, no, but, but, but part of retailing, you know, grocery retailing is lots of spot sales and things. Yeah. It's true. There is the spot sale, but if the you know if the, if if a price of you know if the a- average price of a six okay, yeah. fluctuated, no, that not much, average price. Yes, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Then it would be, um, uh, I, you know, that would be. It seems like there's an in, the breweries have an interest to kind of keep smooth smooth those things out so that uh, yeah, and it just wouldn't be. I mean, there's not a lot in the brewing industry that's fluctuating that wildly generally anyway. And so you wouldn't expect to see wild fluctuations in price. Um, it's a pretty stable cost structure that breweries face. Yeah. You know, energy costs, water costs, labor costs, those are all pretty flexible. Some of the input costs can go up or down. But even those aren't quite as wild as you might imagine. You know, there's the big breweries buy, buy hops in the futures market and stuff too. So Exactly. So there's smoothing going on here. Yeah. When you look at the price of the, the cost of brewing a, a barrel of beer, the price of the the contribution of the hot price is not actually uh, uh, a huge amount of that. So even if it triples, um, the price of a barrel of beer may not be that much more expensive because you're paying for things like you said, uh, your fixed your your brewery, you're paying for your water, you're paying for your heat, you're paying for your employees, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and brewers are also very clever about if there is different inputs that start going up, they can they can subtly adjust away from one thing to another. So if there are certain hops that are really hard to get, you know, they can find other replacement hops that have a flavor profile that are similar or mm-hmm. they'll change the beer slightly, but not enough that most people notice too much. Right. So they can they can also work around those those price price fluctuations as well. Right. So you shouldn't expect to see that too much in the in the market from the supply side. Now, let's talk about what the, what the demand curve does. So what shifts the demand curve up and down? Uh, remember, movement along the demand curve is just this price-quantity relationship, but the demand curve can shift just like the supply curve can shift. I talked about a, hops, a spike in hops uh, uh, prices for the supply curve. Well, what goes into the demand curve? The demand curve, there's lots of things that go in there. Um, the most important thing are just individual preferences and taste change. And that's, this is actually my big narrative about what I see going on in craft beer in general is that tastes are slowly changing over time. And, and as preferences change and taste for craft beer increases, that slowly shifts the demand curve up and up and up and up and up. Um, oh, uh, yeah, I'll get back to that. <laughs> uh, that not only increases the demand for individual consumers, this is the oat part because I want to mention this on the supply side too, but it also increases the number of consumers. Mm-hmm. And so the more consumers you have that are added to the market, that will also shift the, de- the demand curve up and up and up and up. Right. Uh, what I wanted to say uh, was that this is also a big part of the supply curve as well. As you add more brewers, that actually shifts the supply curve down uh, because there are more and more people out there willing to supply the same beer, the more beer at the same price. Right. So that actually is a downward. So as you add consumers, uh, the demand curve should shift up and up and up and up. But as you add brewers, the supply curve shifts down, 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 and they equal each other, uh, and they're sort of offsetting forces. And so the price effect is ambiguous. You don't know whether prices will go up or down. And I think that's uh, we're in this cycle right now where we're seeing both. We're seeing a, a fairly rapid increase in demand for craft beer, which I think a lot of that is um, people still being uh, introduced to the market, um, introduced to the craft beer and entering the market. So increased demanders. 
and also increased suppliers, as we know, that's going on. Um, so that's why we're still seeing fairly stable prices um, and a continually growing, growing market. So there's an interesting phenomenon I've noticed, and and I wasn't this was not on my list of questions, but what you say reminds me of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it when you look at the the premium mass market brands, Budweiser, Coors, mm-hmm. and Miller, not not the light products, the the the, the flagship brands. Um, I don't know if you walked past a grocery store shelf and looked at the price of a six pack of those beers lately. No, not lately. <laughs> they're they're kind of expensive. They're like I have noticed that. Yeah, they're yeah. like they're like six bucks, and I'm just wondering, as that market continues to shrink, it sounds like your model would predict that prices would go up, and that seems like that's what that's what's happening. And that I I always I always wondered why they weren't getting in a price war with craft beer, but now I'm wondering if this. Well, that's interesting. Okay, because let's suppose that the the, the the consumers we're adding to craft beer are consumers that we're taking away from macro loggers, in which case the demand curve for macro should be falling, Yeah. which there's evidence that that's it's, happening. It's definitely true, especially for those flagship brands, because uh, uh, light beer has been cannibalizing from them too. So they're being cannibalized from both sides, the lower end and the upper end. Yeah, which is exactly my second point. So the first point is that that would lower the demand curve and you should expect a downward... Uh, a demand curve that's shifting downward should lower price. But at the same time, I think the supply of those beers has been shifting as well because these are big corporations. They're shifting right. into other things. They've got the alcohol pops. They've got light beer. Uh, and so I think that's creating sort of the, um, a mitigating effect. I also think that these are very clever corporations. And one of the things that clever corporations do is create um, uh, tiers of, of product. So it's just like you have your Toyota and then you have your Lexus. You have your Budweiser and you have your... Oh gosh, what's I can't even connect the, the, the cheapo brands to the Bush Light. Bush Light, yeah, Bush. Thank you. Yes, that, that one actually I should have been able to connect. Uh, there's Keystone too. I don't know who makes that. Is that Coors? I don't know. I think it is. Anyway, so you've got these sort of the uh, so you separate you separate sort of the premium product with the the sub premium product. I don't know what the euphemism they use. I'd like to know, but um, it's probably something like that. Uh, uh, and it's called. It's a form of price discrimination. It's a form of sort of separating consumers into two different categories. The same reason why car dealers, you know, these car manufacturers have created luxury brands and stuff. Um, and so that that could be part of it as well. Is that you're you're separating. So um, you're sort of peeling off a, a set of consumers to buy the Bush, and then you've you keep the you keep the Budweiser price high. But we we actually circle back to this when we talk about these weird pricing things that we're seeing in the market once we finish this. Uh, long drawn out spine demand curve analysis. Let <laughs> me just finish this demand curve. Okay, so uh, the number of consumers obviously affects the demand curve, and I think we've been seeing that over time. But there's other things. So taste matter, and as taste uh, for craft beer increases, we should see demand increase. But that could also be individual beers too. So it could be that IPAs are really popular because people really prefer IPAs right now, and over time maybe that'll change. Maybe they'll start preferring lagers, for example. Um, and so taste can matter in terms of um, of what beers uh, popular advertising works. Um, advertising can can create uh, a differential demand. So um, you spend a lot of time convincing people that Budweiser is better than Miller or Coors, then you might see uh, an impact on the on the price. Or um, if you're clever, sort of advertising things like Levi jeans to create this sort of um, idea that Levi's are different and, and desirable. Uh, incomes are a big deal. So as incomes rise or fall, that can often affect demand, and it depends what kind of product you are. But craft beer, we can assume, is 
what we call a normal good. So as income goes up, you'd expect there to be more demand for for craft beer. Wait, you you're dropping. I'm dropping. You're, you're econ- dropping jargon, or, man. What's a normal good? A normal good is just that it's a it's a good for which you see increased demand when the price goes up. Oh, I see. Uh, sorry, when incomes go up. Uh, so as people get more wealthy, they they consume more of. And what's another category that's not normal? So uh, an inferior good is something that the opposite happens. As you get, as you become more wealthy, you consume less of. And so the example I use in class for my own life is that when I was a poor college student, I ate lots of top ramen because uh, I could buy those five for a dollar, those little packets of ramen. Uh, <laughs> Salt flavor. And as I became more wealthy, now I don't buy those packets of ramen anymore, and I buy like the fancy soup and stuff. You know, to give to give an example. Sure. Um, it might be like a college student who drinks bush and then as an adult drinks bud or bush to you know uh, craft beer or something like that um so there are these these inferior products for which you start consuming less of when you become more wealthy because you only you consume them largely because of their uh low cost um so uh so income income matters uh taste matter advertising matters number of consumers matter lots of things matter in terms of where the where the demand curve is okay so that's i think that's a good that's a good basic framework um and the one that i always have in my head when thinking about uh pricing behaviors so that's the the basic homogeneous model um the the one that sort of ignores lots of lots of uh, real-world heterogeneity, just so we can kind of get the idea. And it's a good way to think about things like production costs, how they matter, uh, how, how the number of breweries is going to affect uh, prices, how incomes changes might affect, how the n- new, new craft beer drinkers will affect things, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that's, that's a, really, a, a really good starting place. And for me, that's, a, that's where I start when I think about the number of breweries, when I think about economies of scale and brewing. Um, that's the model that I have in my head and think about how those are going to affect the market. Excellent. So, so now we can sort of move on and start adding the real world and some of the funky things that we see. But let's move I've on been talking here. a lot. I was just about to say, I've been talking a lot. I'm getting thirsty. Yeah. Uh, so how about we... Um, we open one of these uh, two beers that you brought. Cool. Well, let's start out with uh, the the uh, Cigar City since we talked about it most recently. All right. And this one's a can, so we don't need the can. Yeah. And I, I now relate so much differently to cans than I related to uh, cans 15 years ago. I see cans now, and they're the mark of quality to me. I just <laughs> think that that beer is going to arrive. That's a podcast in itself. Yeah, it really is. These, it's such a better package. So these beers come... T- to us, to me, and now to you, uh, from Eric Samuelson, who is a beer fan in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. And he sent me some cool... Cheers, Eric. Yeah, thank you so much. He sent me a packet of beers, at, uh, an activity I encourage all the podcast listeners to do. Send me, <laughs> wherever you live, send me your beers so I can t- taste them. We will try them here on the podcast. Uh, and mostly, they. Uh, he is in Northern Virginia, and most of the beers... Uh, he sent me was were from Northern Virginia, but he threw in this uh, Cigar City, and it, he he sent this before they got sold, so it, he was somehow prescient about the uh, need that we would have for a Cigar City beer. Yeah, we're we're on point here on the podcast. This is uh, quite a lovely looking uh, uh, lager, by the way. It's it is indeed. Um, it's 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 beautifully rich, golden, warm, sunny color. That's right. Quite clear, very effervescent. I'm sure everyone knows, but Hellas beers are the classic 
pale lagers of Bavaria. You walk into any pub anywhere in Bavaria, and you'll always find a Hell's Ooh, beer. That's very nice. There, um, it is, by the way, the, the the clouds after weeks of torrential rain mm-hmm. have parted, and today is uh, a bright, sunny, very springy day. So this is this is a good beer for Jay. It is. We have this phenomenon in Portland where the the trees come out in in blossom and the daffodils come out and it's still continuing to pour rain <laughs> they just kind of drip melting off their stalks and branches and it's a sad state it's been it's been a very wet winter so this is a nice hellas it um hellases are characterized most prominently by the malts they mm-hmm. they, they uh showcase the in bavaria they showcase the wonderful uh, bready malts that are uh malted all over bavaria and um, they're usually, it's a lot like a Pilsner, except for it's, it's lower, um, it's less, it's a little bit sweeter and yes. uh, less, less, less hops. Yeah. And this one does have a nice, uh, a nice bready quality. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as uh, distinctive as sometimes as some of the Bavarian ones that I've had. Uh, the the uh, the malts are a little bit neutral, mm-hmm. but uh, but it's sweet and smooth, and I can imagine when you're sitting in the hot Florida sun. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. When it's hot as hellas outside. When it's hot as hellas outside. That's right. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's nice. It's I like a, that a lot. They're they're perfect pub beers. They're they're actually you you. I don't think you've not been to Bavaria. Have you been? I have not been to Bavaria. No. Well, you would re, you would really appreciate the Bavarian beer culture, which is much like the English beer culture, where you go into a pub and you sit down and you have a beer like this. It's really well balanced, and you sit there and and you drink it, and it and in a chain of these things where mm-hmm. you have know, sit for a few hours. This one's around. 5%. Is that typical? Yeah. 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 Might, might even be a little bit lighter. Than that. That's, um, yeah. Yeah. But, I think I like Bavaria. I like to go to Bavaria. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, getting a mug of Hellas beer, a pretzel. You just can't beat that. <laughs> Break it up with a, a nice Weizen beer if you want. Maybe a Dunkel. Very nice. Get a sausage when you're, Wait a minute, they have sausage in Bavaria? Oh, yeah, they have okay, sausage. Good. Absolutely. <laughs> I presume, but... I had a lot of sausage <laughs> But yeah, Germany's that's... a big country. You you kind of... You, the stereotypes don't always fit all parts. It's true. No, I think sausages are especially associated with Bavaria, although I'm not entirely... Uh, yeah. The cuisine of, of Germany I'm not so into. They also uh, eat these carp that they catch in the, uh, the, the lakes of Bavaria, and that's a weird scene. I saw a guy with an entire carp the whole fish was deep fried and they brought it out and it looked like a whole fish. You see his fin sticking out as this old guy. All right. Nice. Carp. Yeah, we have friends from Hamburg who eat lots of seafood is their main. Ah. As you might expect. Okay. Uh, so back to... Nice. Thank you for the beer. Uh, I like it. I do too. Big thumbs up. I mean, it's... Might see more of it now that they've been... been <laughs> That's right. Bought out by a big... Maybe they're going to go national. So. <laughs> People who read my blog know I love Hellas's. They're they're the kind of beer that never. They're just not showy, so people never rave about them. But they're really nice beers. Yeah, and as an aside, I'll just say I think this is this is at least locally. I don't know what it's like. I'm sure that I'm sure that lagers have been more quickly adopted in craft brewing in other parts of the country, especially hotter parts. But it's sort of taken a while. But it's finally they're finally being embraced by craft brewers here in the Pacific Northwest and. I kind of think about it as the wonderful revival of you know rescuing loggers from the damage done by yeah. the the macro loggers of the world, and all of a sudden 
people are understanding that these wonderful light beers can be amazingly tasty and sessionable beers. They're wonderful. I really, I really yeah. Like I think it it might be from people who are forty five or forty years and and, un, and under who didn't have that association with macro. Yeah, and they came along. and They're like, whoa, there's this whole tradition of making these amazing lager beers. Why are we not making these? Yeah. And now they're making them. Good. So on that point, uh, a question that I have mm-hmm. is. You were used the word differentiation in the market, mm-hmm. and there's this whole thing about the beer market that uh, I wonder about, which is: uh, is beer a commodity? Is it a is it a product that there's differentiation? When we were when you and I were coming up, we are older than 45, so we do remember the macro days. We would stand in front of the beer aisle, and beer was a commodity, and we looked at it, and we looked, we tried to calculate which one was the cheapest package, and that's the one we bought. <laughs> We were looking at the inferior side of the market. Yeah, exactly. We're on, exactly. We're on the inferior side, and it, beer was beer, and we were not fooled by that. By, by the way, the most frequent uh, answer to our to our, uh, our our question or our puzzle about which is the cheapest was generally hams. Yes, that's true. Hams, hams was, <laughs> and and it was near and dear to my heart. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, no, I mean, all right. So uh, beer is not a commodity. Um, you could pejoratively potentially call those kinds of beers a commodity. Um, the reason I say pejoratively is because we generally use the term in economics to describe a commodity is something that um, is uh, sort of indistinguishable. So um, we use commodities generally and, and often as inputs. But, but let's talk about sort of standard commodities. When you talk about commodity markets, we're talking about things like crude oil and uh, wheat and... Um, uh, pork bellies and things like that. And the point is that it doesn't really matter where they come from. I'm sure that there are fine distinctions in crude oil from one part to another. In fact, I know there are. But essentially, it's it's an interchangeable product. And so I'm buying a barrel of crude, whatever, light, sweet crude. Um, it doesn't matter where it comes from. And so one key, one key part of the definition of commodity is generally this interchangeability that right. um, they are not differentiated. Uh, but it seems products. like in some parts of the beer, there are beer markets where it functions more like a commodity than whatever. What, what's the what what what's a not a commodity? What's the other category called? Uh, well, uh, I don't know that we would call it a c- category, but I would just sort of normal consumer products and or differentiated products in this case. Um, so uh, whether or not you believe it, uh, beer. I mean, I'm thinking of. Of macro lagers now, whether right. or not believe that macro lagers are, are are distinct, they certainly go to great lengths to try and convince consumers that they are distinct. And they func- they do not function like a commodity in the market, and that's that's an important thing because yes. it's not clear to me that that was the case. Yeah. So. But what's interesting about that, um, and I'm making a clear distinction right now, talking about macro lagers that um, are fairly similar, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the the key to trying to just differentiate yourself, and it's the same thing with like athletic shoes, right? Um, you know. People think of Nike's different than Adidas, different than whatever Converse. Converse. <laughs> I was going to say it, but that, I don't even know. Do they still exist? Uh, they do. <laughs> do the I kids got, wear the cons? I say, they're, they're owned by Nike, but they still exist. Okay. Uh, so we we uh, we call these um, uh, monopolistically competitive firms because uh, what you're basically producing is something close to a commodity, something that's very similar. So yes, there's subtle differences in your running shoe from Nike and Adidas, but it serves pretty much the same function in pretty much the same way. But through branding, you're able to distinguish your shoe from somebody else's shoe. 
So if nobody, if there were no brands and everybody just had these generic shoes out there, it'd be very hard to tell, and it would be very much like a commodity. And what that means is that consumers are incredibly fickle; they don't care right. where it comes from. You're going to buy the cheapest tomato, right. when but you by branding, and this is why you see so much advertising for the, the brand advertising for Bud and for Miller and for Coors, is because uh, you're trying to convince consumers that yours is different somehow; mm-hmm. that yours is the one that will lead you to frat parties with half naked babes and stuff or, right or whatever it is they're finally getting away from those that was a bit that was a big argument that's kind of time <laughs> uh um and that way they get to charge more so that the whole point of that is that you peel off part of the market that's slightly loyal to you and so instead of competing directly with everybody else you're still competing with them you can't charge them too much more right but you can charge a differential price because you've convinced people that bud is different than any of those other beers um and so that's a so uh the interesting answer to your question in the macro world is that they may be close to commodities, but through branding, they 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 get they get themselves away from from a commodity market. Now, craft beer, I think, is is legitimately quite distinct, and and beers are quite different depending on the style of beer they're uh, they're making, the brewer who's making the brewery who's making it, um, and so in that case, uh, they're definitely heterogeneous products, um, right, and not commodities. And right. the challenge in this case is to get people to um, to try them when they don't when they can't tell what they are like just from the package yeah so these are interesting we've talked about this before we call these experience goods you don't know how much you like them until you try them and so part of the challenge for brewers is to get people to uh, try it um, and uh, hopefully they'll like it in return so here's the thing uh, there on the one side, you've got the, the commodity, mm-hmm. where uh, one one product is interchangeable with another. Tomato is, mm-hmm. you know, they're not branded, and you go to the grocery store, you don't know who grew that tomato. That's right. Tomato. And the key with that is you have very little pricing power as, right. a, as a producer. You right. Basically so, have to take the market price. Boom. Exactly, the market price. Well, the flip side of that, and I looked this up uh, when I was writing a blog post about our, our discussion last week, mm-hmm. was uh, I, I went to a, a luxury item that I knew I'd heard was had crazy stuff going on hand women's handbags uh-huh. and uh, there there are Prada handbags out there for fifty that sell for fifteen hundred dollars uh-huh. and uh, then there are and then there's it's strat it's radically stratified there's also this guy named Michael Kors I don't know I'm sure if we have if we have anybody who who is into the handbags uh, you'll apologize I apologize for my ignorance here that's that's not C O O R S by the way that's K O R S I know yeah K O R S exactly I've seen the name yes and uh, I think that those are also considered quite good handbags like they're not uh, the the thirty dollar handbags you get down at, uh, at Fred Meyer's right and, but they and they sell for fifteen a hundred and fifty dollars right so one tenth the price yep. and they're still quality mm-hmm. so somehow somebody is is able to get 10 times the value of what is already a quite expensive product. Like when you think of the, the cost of manufacturing the Michael Kors mm-hmm. handbag, it's something a tiny fraction of the $150 right. that, they, that he sells that for. Uh, and, and, the, and yet Prada can get 10 times that amount. So what, yeah. what's going on? And the parallel on here, and the parallel here in the beer, beer world is these beers that just gain this cachet right. that you've got to have. Uh, you can choose your example. You didn't like my example last time, so. Uh, well, uh, it, no, it was a good. It was a good example. It's just, um, I think it's a draft only beer, and we kind of went down a rabbit hole. But yeah, they're the the big barrel aged beers that sell for a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, 
and not just all the big bears, you know, but there are particular, you know, there's sometimes one that gets this buzz, right? Yeah, and we tried a we tried a, a ballast point Sculpin a little while ago, and it's fifteen dollars a six pack for what is just a standard IPA, which yeah. was kind of shocking. It's fifty percent more than any other six pack at, at a, on the shelves in Portland. Right. So that was really kind of shocking. So this is interesting. This happens a lot in economics, and it's it's a curious uh, phenomena. It's been written about, I think. Uh, I think, hey, Jeff, we can hear your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good mic. <laughs> Central Catholic just got out. And it's a sunny day, so there's high spirits. Uh, yes. Uh, Catholic boys in there, in their language. <laughs> Get them out of school. Uh, so, they're done being saints, now it's time to be a saint. Sinners, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, uh, the I, I, I think, I mean, well, certainly the way I was taught was that that the first real um, talk about this type this type of phenomena was by Thorsten, an economist named Thorsten Veblen, who was an economist right at the end of the 19th century. So we're really talking about the turn of the 19th, 20th century now. Um, and he wrote this thing called The Theory of the Leisure Class, mm-hmm. um, which you may not have heard of and probably haven't, but you probably have heard a, to- a term that he coined, which was conspicuous consumption. Ah, yes. And so this all is all around this idea, and there's lots of different um, terms we use for these goods. Status goods is maybe the one that's most frequently used in common parlance, which is these goods that you buy and get enjoyment from precisely because they are rare, exotic, expensive, and they confer upon you a certain status just for possessing them. And that's yeah. the idea of conspicuous consumption. It's 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 um, it doesn't always have to be conspicuous. Maybe it's just enough that you know that you have it and it sits sitting in your wine cellar and nobody else has, you know, or very few people have the same bottle of wine that you do. Uh, but a lot of it is is precisely conspicuous that you buy it and, and by uh, owning it and displaying it, you show uh, your uh, place or you show your elite status. Um, and so these, these status goods can be because they're so scarce. It can be because they're so expensive and therefore hard to obtain. Um, uh, when I was in grad school, I was a uh, TA and research assistant for um, uh, a guy named uh, Robert Frank, who's an economist. He contributes to the New York Times sometimes, but he's done a lot of um, writing about uh, sort of luxury goods, luxury class. He's mm-hmm. written a book called Luxury Fever. Um, he talks about these things as positional goods, goods that you buy to sort of uh, signify your position in society. And a yacht, for example. The yacht, for example. And he's got an interesting take, which he, he actually thinks that there's a societal cost to this, that there's an externality involved. And I mention this because in beer, this is interesting. Uh, it might have a parallel to beer. I'm not sure. You you all can decide what you think. But he thinks there's an externality because these goods crowd out non-positional goods. So rather than make um, uh, uh, lots of good beer at a reasonable price, brewers will divert some resources into brewing this very special, fantastic uh, one-off beer um, to try and uh, appease that side of the market. Now, I actually think the beer parallel is probably less uh, less apt, but his general uh, point is that with these sort of positional goods, if you have the, I don't know, he's used like the $30,000 barbecue as an example, um, that it creates this marketplace in which there are fewer just regular goods and therefore uh, they're more costly. Um, so, hey, the Central Catholic folks like the base. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see if the podcast can pick this up. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, so, um, uh, 
so getting back to the original question, so uh, economists have long recognized that these goods exist, that these are important. Uh, the psychologists, I'm sure, have a lot to say about about why these exist, and it's very hard to predict um, sometimes which goods will will come their way. But when when goods achieve this sort of status, then they can sort of uh, become this elite good that whose price gets bid up, and people will pay the price not just for the good itself, but for the aura that sort of surrounds the good, and for being the person who one of the few that get to consume it. In the beer world, these things are called whales. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, and people go whale hunting, and there's this whole culture around uh, whales and whale hunting. And a lot of times, it's obs- it's obscure beers that were released a while ago, mm-hmm. or it's a it's a beer like a Cantillon, which is hard to get because it has such small production. Right. Um, but there's an interesting product that I think really relates to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, every year, uh, Sam Adams releases a beer called Utopias, mm-hmm. which uh, is a, a a super strong beer. I think it's um, freeze distilled, mm-hmm. and they sell it for two hundred bucks a bottle. Mm-hmm. Retails it for two hundred dollars a bottle, and it's it's one of these kind of manufactured whales. You know, they could yeah. they could make as much if they want, or they could make quite a bit if they wanted to, and they could sell it for cheaper if they wanted to. But um, they've created this this category, and when it comes out, it's a big deal, and people want to get it. And uh, um, having it seems much more interesting than drinking it. Yeah, and I imagine that it's a blip. On their spread, on their oh yeah, on their spreadsheet, well, not spreadsheet, on their books, right? right. Yeah. That it, that the money they make on this beer is probably almost neither here nor there. But what it does is create this buzz, right? And uh, it may be manufactured or not, but if it's a whale and people are talking about it and it becomes a thing, then you uh, draw attention to your brand in a very crowded marketplace, and especially these. Uh, brands that have been these legacy brands, maybe I'll call them, that have been around for a yeah. long time. That's good. good um, that are constantly sort of fighting the hype of, or having to um, counteract the hype of all of these new beers and brewers that are that are coming out. Um, you know, it's hard to stay in the front of people's minds if you're the brewer that's been around 10, 15 years now. Yeah, uh, it's hard. So I think there's a lot of things that are going on in terms of those the the prices of those beers you know we've talked about supply curve cost of production matters but you know it's not that much more expensive especially if you're a fairly big brewery you know right. that's like just one one batch right right <laughs> it's it's hardly anything um uh so uh yeah i think i think there is a lot of um specialty one-off beers and and i don't mean that necessarily that they're sort of looking for whales but there are a lot of specialty one-off beers that brewers do just to to try and keep um sort of interest in their in their beer uh high among brewers keep their name out there being talked about um and also i think that it's just fun for the brewers too there's a there's a question that came in that's related to this from noah loesberg mm-hmm. Noah, i hope i'm pronouncing your last name right um, which is right on this point, so I'm just going to throw it out to you here while we're here, um, and then maybe we should have the second beer. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, uh, can't we say that basically the entire market for these beers, and he's talking about the whale kind of beers, mm-hmm. uh, is the people who are discussing the price value questions as well as drinking the beer? Commodity beer consumers hmm. will self-select from waiting in lines when they just want to drink uh, with friends. So applying a kind of moral pressure on brewers who are perceived as creating uh, intentional scarcity is a way of telegraphing a potential future reluctance to pay pay the high price, almost within a classic supply-demand equation. No? 
he asks. Hmm. Uh, you answer that, and I will. <laughs> I will get this next beer out. Uh, I'm gonna. I have to. I have to look at this. The, the text itself. All right. I All will. Right. Uh, we'll have some nice audio so, here while you're doing this. Yeah. So you you create the audio. This one has. Uh, this is a bottle. I'm trying to pimp the sound here. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Um, uh, ooh, very nice. Can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. This is a good mic. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not. I don't think I understand 100% the question, but it does seem like this. There's sort of a self. He's talking about self-selection. So there's there's consumers who care and consumers who don't. Right. Um, the consumers who care, I think, are quite happy that the brewers are brewing these one-offs and creating things that they can get jazzed about and will go off and select these beers. And then the bulk of consumers probably uh, don't. Uh, uh, the part that I don't understand is that the moral pressure on on uh, on brewers telegraphing future reluctance to pay the high price. I'm not exactly sure what um, what that is. I think he just means that the scolding of, of brewers for doing this is yeah. is, is, peop, is people who aren't interested in these beers in general. So, I mean, you know, I have absolutely nothing, uh, nothing offends me about this at all. I mean, it's perfectly fine. If the beers are going for these prices, that means there are people out there who get enjoyment from it. If it's just because they like to be the one, one of the few who get it, that's fine with me. I have no... Uh, no qualms about that at all, and I don't think that these beers are really, um, in the Bob Frank sense, uh, uh, creating less good beer for for the rest of us. Right. So you can either pay attention and, and care and want to be part of this market or not. Um, and either way, I, I it doesn't bother me at all. Right. I have a, I have a thought on that, but uh, let me just mention that yeah. this is a what port is a Port City Optimal Wit uh, from Alexandria, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Port City is a brewery, a brewery from Alexandria. Uh, and this is a, a wit beer, so uh, we know all about wit beers. And it it has uh, it's made with Virginia wheat, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I love uh, southern southern breweries are having some access to local grains. Yeah, I know Full Steam in uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, Durham, North Carolina, is doing some local. They're they're uh, contracting with some local corn manufacturers i think also Good. north carolina wheat so that's pretty cool this also has coriander grains of paradise uh and orange peel so a little bit more than the average yeah beer. i love i love breweries and brewers that try to express some local oh that's really nice isn't it it is very nice it's also another uh it's perfect for this weather it's really a sunny a sunny weather beer yeah I actually hate Grains of Paradise, and when I see them on a on a beer, I almost never uh, enjoy it. But they're the the problem is that um, there is a there are a few spices that are extremely strong, and Grains of Paradise is one of those. And brewers tend to overuse them, and they're just they they're horrible. Pink peppercorn is another one, and um, what's that? Cardamom. Cardamom is also really, yeah really yeah. intense. Yeah, this one's nice. This one has a really nice little citrus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it. it's uh, it's it's got all, all the classic qualities you want. The, there's a weedy character, which yep. is nice, very nice, and then that that uh, citrusy, orangey quality, mm. uh, which is is a little bit spicy, but mostly the spices are are working with the 
the the citrusy to make it more citrusy. Yeah, yeah I then, tend to be sensitive to spice too, but this is not in yeah. any way or spice. It's nice and dry at the finish, which is great for a summer sipper. Yeah, and it's a uh, 4.9% Session Wool beer. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Kudos, Port City. Good job, Port City. <laughs> We're impressed. Yeah. Um, so uh, here, here's a question I, I have. Uh, yep. Just, we, you know, sometimes we hone in, uh, home in as beer drinkers. Sorry, hone in. There's some, there's some grammar nerds who really get that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just aware that I said that out loud. Yeah. Uh, who focus so intensely on the beer market that they kind of lose the forest for the trees mm-hmm. and beer is still really cheap. Like you compare it to liquor or wine. Uh, if you, if you look at the $200 bottle of Utopias as the top thing, mm-hmm. almost everything falls, you know, in the, in the, below $20, like one tenth the price of the most expensive thing. Like almost the entire market is there. And even when you're talking about a 15, $20 bottle of, uh, for a 22 or a 750, yep. it's it's not out of the price range of most consumers to splurge on that every now and again. Yeah, an expensive beer. I mean, we're still talking about um, uh, it's a relatively inexpensive product as as that thing goes. So as the market, the market, it's a mass product. You know, it's got even even craft beer is still a mass product. Sure. So yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that other than to just say that um, when we talk about uh, these really, really expensive beers. They're I'm not putting, that expensive. That's right. Yeah. I put scare quotes on well, it. Well, one of the things, by the way, um, you know, it's different. There's not a lot of beer. I that, mean, people are paying $1,500 <laughs> for a damn handbag. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, and they pay a lot more for wine, and, but it's different because wine is storable and, and arguably good wines get a lot better with aging. And so you can hold on to it for a long time and have the, the warm glow of knowing that you have the, right. you know, Chateau Lafitte yeah. from 1942 or whatever, God knows. Uh, and 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 beer isn't beer is much more perishable, and so there are very few that you can you can store for too long. Um, and so that that probably also helps keep the prices down as well. And I think the people who the whale hunters, uh, it, the you know society recognizes if you own a yacht or a fur coat that you're rich, but mm-hmm. if you own a uh, a 2005. Uh, Rose de Gambrinus from Cantillon <laughs> you may not get the same cultural yeah. bump right. <laughs> depends, depends on your social circles right. uh, so there's one other thing I wanted to talk about um, because I've mentioned it before and, and it's actually one of the things that I've gotten the most comments on that, um, uh, when I talk about this uh, when I've talked about this previously on my blog which is this idea that beer is uh, what I called an experience good, mm-hmm. um, that you don't know how much you're going to like a beer until you try it. There's really no way. You can look at the label and you can see how they've described the beer and you can think, eh, it's kind of what I like. Um, and so uh, there's interesting pricing strategies that uh, um, that happen with right. um, with these types of experience goods. And it's all in this model that we call signaling, is that somehow since you can't, um, since consumers can't figure out the, the how much they like the product until they buy it you try to signal somehow the quality of your product um, and um, in general you'd think that everybody would want to signal that their product is great and that you should try that but what happens is when you have these repeat uh, consumer interactions that consumers figure this stuff out right. so if you really have kind of a low quality product and you spend a lot of money trying to convince consumers that it's high quality it doesn't pay off because they figure it out pretty soon, and then nobody wants to buy buy your product. Um, but if you have a high quality product, 
and you spend a fair amount of money, um, then it makes sense because consumers will figure it out and they'll keep coming back. So that creates a natural separation mm-hmm. um, that uh, people with high quality goods will spend the money and then you can actually take that signal as conveying real information. Right. In fact, the very fact that they spent money to convince you it's high quality means it probably is high quality because it wouldn't be worth it if it was, if it was low quality. And so I made this point about beer pricing. One of the ways you can signal quality is through price. Yeah. So you can say, look, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna charge this price of my beer um, and that way, consumers will figure out that this is a high quality good, and they'll they'll buy it in the first place. And so, it's one of these things that seems to be a little bit counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it's not it's not as counterintuitive as uh, as you as you might think. And I think a long time ago, I I did this in, in response. Uh, it, it used Rogue. You did. I was going to bring that up, and you got in trouble with Rogue for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, they didn't they didn't buy it. They didn't, that's not why we have high price because. Well, I don't remember why they said it. <laughs> it didn't convince me. Uh, the, oh, just a moment of background is here in, in, in Oregon, Rogue sells for quite a bit more money than, than other beers. Yeah. And we were just, uh, it just came up. And, and Yeah, a lot of the beer geeks around here wonder how they can get away with it now yeah. that there's so much good beer. you know. Um, and part of the reason is that we're actually kind of a small part of the, the big Rogue. Rogue. Rogues has spread far and wide. Absolutely. And, and in decreasing number as they grow, their, their market share in, in Oregon stays flat or shrinks and so yeah they, they're they're not they're not pricing based on the organ so so they thought that i was slacking them off but i was actually uh saying look what they're doing makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. economically if you're getting into markets far and wide where you don't you don't really know maybe you have a bit of a reputation a uh, a a high price point is a way to signal look no we're you know we're quality craft beer and we're different than the other stuff that you're seeing. And it's totally consistent with Rogue's approach. They have, uh, in the past five years, planted uh, barley fields and planted hop fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've expanded into micro distilling and cider making, and they're trying to do uh, this kind of sophisticated thing where they're spending a ton of money to do it. So it actually, whether whether they'll cop to it being intentional or not, um, it all kind of fits together. Yeah, and they even have a floor malting facility. That, that's right. <laughs> they, so they're, they're doing all kinds of really cool things, actually. They're, they're a funky company, and they kind of uh, uh, march to the beat of their own drum, and, and more power to them. Um, it's not the only strategy, by the way. There's other strategies, like um, a big part of the success of Ninkazi was that they started off, knew that they had a long-term growth strategy, and they knew that they were going to come uh, with a price point that made them very competitive. Yeah. And so, you know, the success of Ninkazi Brewing, which is an Oregon brewer that has grown um, phenomenally, um, was, to, was to come at a fairly low price point and, uh, and get people to, to try the beer uh, for that reason. And, and I don't know if it was a real loss leader, but essentially the idea was that they would grow into that price point. Right. Um, that once the scale, the scale would soon justify that they needed volume. Right. Um, and they and, and as we know, they their volume, they continued to they were like in a constant state of expansion for the first five years. Yeah. So I don't mean to suggest that this sort of signaling with price is a, is a universal at all. I just it was just one of those things that because because of experienced goods you do different things. And you also do things like, you know, you got to pay a lot of attention to your branding and advertising and that kind of stuff. So going out, let me ask you a question yeah. that's an interesting let's I I think economists hate to do this, but um beer geeks love it. So <laughs> uh, put on your prognosticator hat and you you mentioned that there that in the in the uh, mass market segment you have a stratification of products. So 
you know, you have expense soup. Yep. I think there's like super premium. I think like Nickelodeon is super premium, right. and then Budweiser is premium, and then maybe sub. I don't know what it is. Yes. Could you imagine a period right now that we don't see that in craft beer? We see, you know, like a uh, there are a few outliers, but there's not a stratification into categories yet. Would you imagine when you think about an IPA, for example, we don't have uh, cut rate IPAs, medium priced IPAs, and expensive IPAs? Do you think that in the future, um, as this market becomes more mature, we'll start to see that kind of stratification? What 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 is the price? What does future pricing for craft beer look like? That's interesting. It's it's. I, I would argue that it's happening a little bit. Um, there are these sort of limited and brewmaster reserve and special special beers that a lot of the these bigger size craft brewers are putting out. Sure. Um, and you could argue that that's a type of a type of market segmentation they're doing um, okay. already. Uh, um, you know, for my beer shirt recommendation, before I talked about, I was going to talk about uh, value from value for money is our theme, and I was going to talk about session uh, the session beers that Full Sail put out, and that was um, arguably sort of the craft beer answer to the sub premium brands. They they came up with uh, uh, you know sort of high quality versions of. Well, in this case, the original session lager was a high-quality version of a mass-market lager at a lower price point than most craft beer. Right. Um, so, you, so I would argue that that's sort of happening. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I think what's going to happen is these bigger brewers, the Sam Adams, the Sierra Nevadas, the um, uh, New Belgiums, for example, um, are going to start adopting increasingly sophisticated product and pricing strategies. Hmm. Um, and the most sophisticated product and pricing people out there are the macro brewers. Um, they do it for a reason. They do it because it works. It makes money. It's it's right. a profit maximizing strategy. Um, I don't say that in a bad way at all. I'm an economist. I think more power to you. You know, find any way you can to make. But I but um, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Especially those bigger breweries start. You start seeing more stratification along those lines. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see some other brewery do what. Full sale did and create some kind of like session brand or you know some um, sub premium brand mm-hmm. uh, um, that's out there to try and sell more but at a lower price. Right. So so yeah, um, um, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I don't it, think it actually seems like a great idea if you could make an IPA that you could sell re- regularly, you know, reliably in in the Portland market. I don't know what other markets are for uh, seven dollars a six pack mm-hmm. uh, for an IPA, even if it wasn't quite as good. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd you'd get a lot of market share just because people would be like, "Yeah, it's pretty good." Yeah, and there have been some examples in the past of like house brands, like grocery store house brands that have mark that have contracted with craft brewers to produce something like that. So yeah, those are a bad. It seems like those are a little bit of a bad fit because craft brewing's identity is yes. local and artisanal. Yeah, so that's why I think uh, Full Sail had a lot of success with Session, which still fits that category. Yeah, and but, but it's a, maintains the brand identity. Yeah, right. Stays in the family. So, so it's something that I would. I don't think it's gonna. I, I would guess it's not gonna be a big thing for a while. Um, I think that right now the the narrative for craft beer in the next five years is gonna be lots and lots and lots of startups, and then a lot of churn. Mm-hmm. That we're gonna start seeing. Um, uh, some of those are gonna do well, and some of those aren't. And there's gonna be more maturing, and a lot of this venture capital, I think, has the mind to create. Uh, either um, uh, uh, associate, you know, a, 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 a collection of brands that they'll grow together, or to create 
um, another big national craft brand like on the lines of Sierra Nevada and in New Belgium and, and Sam Adams. So I think that's what, for me, that's what the next five years are going to be about, um, I, I'm guessing. But then, but then, you know, those bigger, more mature brands, will still, I think we'll still we'll continue to see them evolve. Yeah. And you could argue, by the way, that that's also sort of what's one way to envision the, one way to, to make sense of the, you know, like Anheuser-Busch acquisition strategy is to create this sort of little group of super duper premium <laughs> uh, beers um, right. that exist along and, and, and that they might see that as one market segment and then Bud is another market segment and then Bush has another market. You know, that might be how they're viewing it. Um, I, other, I don't exactly, but... And other, another company could see an, another opportunity there. This just gets me thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want, because there's a big scramble now for companies to try to get national distribution in the craft segment. Right. So one way to do that, one one area in that 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 market is to if you wanted to try to do a cheaper brand and be that would that would be a differentiation from the main product. So maybe it would give you a new place on the shelf mm-hmm. if you were uh, offering a slightly more inexpensive brand and that would be a, a national brand strategy rather than going up, you go down. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Could be. Could Interesting. Be. Well, that's good stuff, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, now that now that uh, uh, you're thoroughly bored, um, and, well, and cheaper than an econ 101 course at Oregon State. So. That's that's right, exactly. <laughs> you saved whatever the tuition is. I don't even know these days. Yeah. Uh, okay, beer sherpa. All right, beer sherpa. Well, you you've already mentioned yours, um, which I think is a good one. Yeah. So so I'll just uh, to give slightly more context. Full Sail Brewing, which is uh, one of the regional brewers here um out of hood river in oregon uh quite a few years ago now um came out with session lager which is uh, a light lager um quite tasty um i think quite superior product to the, the other macro lagers um, but at a good good price point um uh, very affordable and uh it was a huge success and now they're up to i think seven different versions of setting either session ipa the session block black lager right yeah uh cream ale a bunch of stuff yeah um and so the 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 theme of the of the uh beer sherpa we decided was going to be value for money right um and so this is sort of down down at the lower end the value for money which is some some tasty versions of mass market lager uh available um in this case uh session lager i i still enjoy good great for a summer day yeah uh, I considered the Baltic Porters, which I mentioned in the past, are an amazing deal. They're mm-hmm. like 8% beers. The, the Polish ones, uh, uh, Black Boss, which we actually drank for one of our podcasts, uh, Zywicz, I'm not sure how, to, how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. Akasim, again, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, great beers. They're like uh, 500 milliliters, like two or three bucks at the local store. Uh, so those are great. That is good value for money. Great value for money. Um, Sierra Nevada Narwhal, we were kind of thinking around and we found stumbled across that one you get a four pack for like 10 or 12 bucks mm. it's an amazing imperial stout yep. and for price per bottle is pretty darn low given that beer uh, but i'm going to go for uh uh a beer that i really love uh and it's typical of german beers it's a german beer german breweries are used to making beer for low prices mm-hmm. and you can buy german imports they're among the cheapest imports and of course they're among the best beers available uh, one of the nicest ones is uh, Schneider Aventinus. 
Aventinus. I'm never really sure how to pronounce that one. <laughs> um, it's a it's a Weizenbach, and it, you can get a bottle, a 500 milliliter bottle of that for three or four or five dollars, and it is tasty. So uh, if you you know, it, it's one of those things that if a local craft brewer made it, they would probably charge more for bottle. Mm-hmm. Than Schneider, who is the the world's perhaps premier. Uh, Bavarian meat beer maker will will ship it all the way from Kelheim, and uh, you can pick it up for cheap. So that's a great beer. All right, good, good, good suggestion. All right, so I guess I'm doing the outro here. Oh, go for it. You know, we flipped the we flipped the script. So thanks for listening to the Beervana podcast, the special economics St. Patrick's Day version the of the Beeronomics uh, podcast. Yeah, the Beeronomics <laughs> podcast. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so a few words. Uh, going on on how to stay in touch. Patrick blogs and tweets at Beeronomics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, send uh, an email to the underscore beer at yahoo.com. Uh, I will receive that and we'll try to incorporate that into the, uh, the uh, mailbag. So please, we love, we love comments. Let us know suggestions what you're for, thinking. Suggestions for future pods. Yeah. Uh, future pods, future beers that we should be trying. Um, you can use that email to get that the mailing address. So when you want to ship us beer, <laughs> that's, that's, that'll work. Um, you can also find us at the Beervana blog Facebook page, um, where we post uh, uh, information about the podcast. And um, I blog at uh, Beervana. That's where I blog. Yes, Beervana. Yeah, yeah turns out. Yeah, and I, and I, I tweet at Birvana also. So that's that's it, I guess. I'm not so good at the outro. You're you're more. All right, I gotta I gotta pour some of this more wit because you didn't give us very much. There we go. So we can cheers our way out. We're gonna cheers our way out. Yeah. All right. So I have the Port City Optimal Wit. I have the Cigar City Hella Hottest Hellas Lager. All right. So All right. special. Um, uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day, Day cheer. Yeah. Slancha. Slancha. <laughs>